Hello, San Pedro Podcast, episode 83. Hey, I'm Amanda. And I'm Jess. And this is the Hello, San Pedro Podcast. Join us as we talk with locals, community leaders, business owners, and people like us who love all things San Pedro. Every week, we'll explore San Pedro's deeply rooted culture, discuss local issues, and spread good vibes. Let's get into it. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Hello San Pedro podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Amanda Silva. Uh, My co-host Jess is still traveling in Portugal with her husband Bradley and living her best life. I do miss her so, so much and she's about halfway through her trip. Um, So we will see her in the near future. But in the meantime, you're still stuck with me. Anyway, in today's episode, we are continuing with our series on local history in honor of Angela Romero. And... um, The topic of conversation is actually something we've been wanting to discuss on the podcast for a long time now. Jess and I have talked about it many times, and we knew it was something we wanted to bring to the podcast. Um, And the day has finally come. Many of you either know or at least are familiar with Walker's Cafe. Well, in today's conversation, we discuss what the process was like for Walker's Cafe to achieve Los Angeles historical landmark status. Our guest today was an absolute pleasure to have this conversation with, and um, we actually met totally by chance in a very Pedro way, uh, with also with an Angela Romero connection, so that's very Pedro. <laughs> um, anyway, we're going to go ahead and let her introduce herself, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Emma. I've been living in San Pedro for a little bit over two years. I'm a writer and a literary translator from German and Dutch. And um, some of the San Pedro things that have preoccupied me over the past year is I've been working with the feral cat population here in San Pedro. And I also launched a campaign to obtain historic landmark status for Walker's Cafe and make sure it stays around. Very cool. So many things. (laughs) Um, Feral, the feral, okay, we're going to talk about that. So for sure. But I'll I'll let you, I'll let you in the episode. Um, So I was going to say, if you could just go back a little bit and talk to us about where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Yeah. um, So I grew up in Holland. Um, That's where I'm originally from. Um, And I grew up in sort of small town, kind of post-war suburbia. I guess not the sort of picturesque environment that people typically associate with Holland. People tend to think like Amsterdam and Tulip Fields. Um, and what was my childhood like? I guess I very much kind of lived in stories. I was always an avid reader, very interested in languages. That's how where the translation part comes in as well. I watched a lot of soap operas. That's where my connection with American culture began. Um, my grandmother wait, wait. watched like as the world turns like every single day and I kind of got sucked in through her and through my mom so I was just um this has been on my mind because I had the flu a couple weeks ago and I just spent a week binge watching 1997 as the world turns on YouTube and it was the most delightful experience oh my goodness because I just remember like when that first aired I was a kid and all these stories were like so formative they were like seared into my brain I could remember like the sort of sassy comeback from the villain and stuff like that so that is so funny yeah I've heard that before like a lot of people who have like soap opera and that's like their connection you know yeah I even guess like Spanish soap operas too <laughs> right right yeah so I guess that's kind of how it started for me and um yeah I spent quite a bit of time in uh Sweden and in France growing up um you know in in Europe it's crossing borders is a lot easier than it is when you're in the U.S. So that, that would kind of be our summer travel. So like a connection to nature was always like a big part of my life as well. And just a love of travel. And I kind of knew pretty young that I wanted to get out. I mean, there were some other sort of personal factors that contributed to that, but I knew I just wanted to be in different countries, different landscapes. So I moved around a lot. I lived in Germany. I lived in the UK on a canal boat for quite a while. On a canal boat? Yes. Oh my goodness. I want to know more, but but continue. 
Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's how I, so I ended up in LA in, in 2016. I was here visiting friends. A number of longtime friends all kind of happened to end up in LA and kind of um, kept campaigning for me to visit. And I was very much, like, I considered myself very much a sort of rainy weather sort of person. So I was like, oh, I'm too goth for Southern California. But I could totally see you in Portland or Seattle or something. Yeah, like that. that was always more my vibe. But um, so finally, after... I guess several years of campaigning. My, my friend Wynn got me to come out for the summer and I stayed with him and his roommate Marina Del Rey. And then like a week before I was originally due to fly back, I met Romy, who's now my wife. Um, not, to be, not to be confused with Angela Romero. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so a week before I was due to fly back, she and I met. And then I ended up changing my flight and staying for as long as I could um, legally under the um, visa waiver program. And so I, we ended up doing like the back and forth dance for like a year where I would come here for a while and then go back to my canal boat. And then finally we ended up getting married. And then we, we lived in downtown LA first. We lived in Silver Lake for a little while, really didn't like that. And I really wanted to be closer to the water because I was missing kind of, you know, boat, boating life and um, being closer to nature. And um, yeah, that's how we ended up in San Pedro. How did you come across San Pedro, like on the map? So, <laughs> yeah, that was one of the first questions that, that Angela asked me as well. Like she had this, she had, she told me the story the first time that we met about somebody from, I can't remember, I think somebody from Scotland who, who went to high school with her, like transferred, moved to San Pedro. And like her first question was, how did you find us? Cause she was just like amazed that somebody from so far afield would like find themselves here. I always am too. I'm like, how did you get here out of all the places? And now if you were in LA, if that was kind of like your Western, like first place, there's so many places along the water that you could have ended up. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So it's a funny thing. So um, a good friend of mine who now lives in Berlin, she's a writer and a literary translator as well. She's She grew up in San Pedro. Her name's Saskia Vogel. Um, and she her novel is her first novel, which is um, called Permission, is set in San Pedro, even though it's like it's not it's not named as such, but it, it features and there's recognizable. There's we like Sunken City. We need that book. Yeah. So she had, you know, from reading her book and from talking to her, like she always spoke about it very lovingly as just this sort of, you know, like as a community and that's something that we were really longing for and that's really hard to find in LA. We lived in downtown LA which is very feels very transient and is this weird combination of like stressed office workers, um, 20 something aspiring influencers and then like the homeless population of Skid Row which is just yeah. like grinding poverty which is just like heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. So we felt like we couldn't really get rooted there, even though it's like a fascinating part of LA that has so much history and so much architectural beauty. And I still really have a soft spot for it, but it kind of wasn't the place for us. And then we moved to Silver Lake, I guess kind of on the coattails of its sort of bohemian reputation from like 20 years ago. Like I thought it was gonna be a place with like indie coffee shops and an intellectual culture of, you mm. know, like, interesting events and people to talk to and it just really wasn't that sorry which specific part of LA Silver Lake, Silver Lake that's yeah okay. yeah we were there for two years and we were pretty unhappy was, most of the time I was gonna say did those two years match up around the time that it started to change like the it had already changed we were just you know like it's funny like when you move to a place you're often like lagging slightly behind in your perception of it because you're going based on what you've read or what people have told you and so, and I also had, you know, like some good friends of mine lived there, but have lived there for 20 years. And that's a very different experience because, you know, they've seen it change for the worse and they're not thrilled about it, but they have their sort of established patterns of living and their, you know, but also their memories of, what, of when it was a place that you could tap into in a different way than what seemed possible to us. So, yeah, it, it just also felt like this weird, like, kind of segregated community in effect where on the one hand you have like the Latino community where you know like often like who've been there for much longer and often there's like you know for me like I'm not a Spanish speaker so there's like a language barrier there um and then like a lot of young people who seem very wealthy and not particularly like 
you know, and, and I mean, this is obviously I'm generalizing. That's like not everybody who lives in Silver Lake, but that was kind of our experience of living in this apartment building with young people who, you know, I guess we're trying to make it as influencers or whatever. I mean, that was yeah. just the vibe of being like very invested in image and very invested in being trendy and being of the moment and not necessarily wanting to make kind of organic and lasting connections with people. And that's that here today, gone tomorrow vibe that you get in any big city. And then, you know, LA is just a very career driven place. And because they're often careers that are about image, image. right? Mm -hmm. It's like this whole, like, if you're not a part of the industry, if you're not a part of whatever, you know, like, um, creative field I'm trying to make it in I'm not that interested in talking to you there was like a lack of community yeah. I want to say and yeah. community sounds very important to you yeah I mean I'd gone from like living on my canal boat which I was moving around so I didn't have a permanent mooring so the way it works is you can get a license for the canal and river system and you can use the guest moorings but that means you have to relocate every two weeks and then you do have the option of paying to stay, you know, during winter time when sometimes the canal freezes over and now with climate change, not so much, but you can pay to get a winter mooring somewhere and stay put for a while and sort of wait it out. But yeah, I was moving around, but it's, you know, it's slow travel, it's four miles an hour. So like I would go from like one neighborhood to the next or one village to the next once I left London and started exploring more. But it's very much a community because even though the sort of constellation of people changes all the time. You're all on the same street. Like it's a very long street that goes up the whole, you know, all the way up to Yorkshire. But, you know, and every you two weeks, your neighbors change. Your so neighbors change. But very often what happens is these temporary communities sprout up. So you travel in pack for a while until you feel like you want to be on your own again or you want to go with into a different direction or with different people. And because it's a very practical lifestyle, people support each other. It's just understood that when you're having issues with your engine, you ask your neighbor, hey, you know, do you have this tool or do you yeah. know what's going on? Or mm -hmm. if you run out of kindling and you need to light your coal stove in winter because you've got to stay warm, like it's just like natural that you help each other out. And it was such a revelation for me because London can also be quite a cold place socially. And it's also very transient, very busy and very sort of workaholic sort of city. But when I moved on to the canal, which is a sort of total fluke how that happened, but it was such a revelation because I could be in an urban environment and yet have that community and also like be in nature if I wanted to be. Just be like, you know, places like Hackney Marshes in the East End of London, which is just like this, you know, like sort of on the outskirts and it's very, you know, you can be very close to a tube stop, but you still have like these sprawling fields that you can go walking in. So, and that was something that, you know, it just sort of took me a few years to get my mind around the geography of LA, how sprawling it is, the infrastructure. I, I still don't have a driver's license. I've been very stubbornly riding public transit until the pandemic hit. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm not sure I want to get on the bus right now. <laughs> and now, you know, like now I'm finally at the point where I have to just bite the bullet and get my license. Cause this is, you know, like, for a lot of people, like making their way all the way down the 110 is like, it's a big ask, you know, for of, of friends who don't live here. So now I'm at the point where I, I just, I, I do need to drive to be able to get around a little bit more easily. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't know. It's just been like, it just took a few years. And so my wife's from the East Coast. She's from Philly originally, which is also like very different. And that's like, it's a very condensed, very walkable, like more European style city so it kind of took us a while to figure out like what do we want our LA life to look like and what can it look like given some of the restrictions that are the results of like not having you know fantastic public transit and right. you know stuff like that and so yeah and so that's where we ended up like drawn to San Pedro we visited for a weekend in 2019 and we actually got a room on the Queen Mary which was still being used as a hotel at the time because we couldn't really find anywhere to stay here that we liked and I was like okay we got to stay on a boat okay 2019 yeah okay. but but what got you what got you interested specifically in Pedro so that was through my friend Saskia oh, like Saskia. from having right. having read her book That's and right. having mm -hmm. talked to her about like you know Sunken City and she sort of talked about like sort of like you know like the, the skater punk teenagers hanging out mm -hmm. there and stuff mm -hmm. like that and you know Walker's makes a cameo appearance in her book as well and you know she's she said you know if you I ended up like messaging her the last minute when we came down for the weekend. I'm like, we're headed to San Pedro. What should we do? And the first thing she she told me, the first thing you got to do is you got to go get a Bessie burger. So that was the first thing we ever did was actually go to Walker's and 
get a burger and just like sit there for a while and like look at the ocean and it just like it just felt really welcoming my so my first summer here when I was visiting when I still thought I was just passing through I was staying with friends in Marina del Rey and um on my first day here, my friend Wynn introduced me to this diner called Maxwell's, which is in on Washington Boulevard, um, sort of between Marina del Rey and Culver City. And it's a very similar sort of place where it's like a horseshoe-shaped bar, it's like wooden tables, people have like put stickers for all sorts of different things, like, um, you know, a sort of place that has like accumulated all these layers over time. And like every morning I'd see the same people. There's this guy with like a trucker hat and a big beard and he'd walk, like he lived around the corner. <laughs> every morning I'd see him sort of meandering over there and having his same order. And I just like got used to that being my routine. And that was the one thing that made me feel like as daunting and strange as LA was in a lot of ways for me as a European, I was like, oh, I can do this. Like this is what makes me feel like I'm anchored here, you know? And so, like when we walked into Walkers, like that was kind of the same feeling. Like, you know, I immediately like ended up having like a conversation with somebody about like politics. And it was like, just this very like, felt very like sort of open-ended, you know, it, it just coming from a place of like, just like mutual interest and just like not, you know, with no interest in status, which like coming from Silver Lake was like a huge breath of fresh air. It's like not about where you are on the social ladder or what your aspirations are. It's just about like having like a human conversation. Authenticity yeah. in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. At what point did you um, start to hear either rumors and or how did, how, were, how did you become aware that Walker's was potentially going up? Right, so sale rumors or... like in this in the summer of last year, like there were already sort of rumblings that the family that owned it might be looking to move on, but I wasn't really sure whether to believe it because then I'd hear from other like longtime regulars like, oh, like they've said that a lot. They've said that loads of times and it never happens. They're always talking about selling up and then they don't. And, you know, like we continued to go every day and it was open every day. So like we weren't worried because we were like living at the present, you know, like it seemed everything seemed fine. And then um, we were we were actually away. We were on Catalina for our anniversary in October when we heard that it had closed just like suddenly, like without notice from one day to the next. It's like, all right, this is, you know, this this chapter seems to be over. And it's like the moment. I heard that I was like oh shit like this is you know like it, it, it actually is happening like it wasn't just talk and so up to that point had you met the owners previously no or? so they lived out of they lived um like north of Sacramento like they've mm-hmm. been yeah the, so um so basically so it was started by Bessie of, of Bessie Burger fame right and, and and her husband in 46 and then she ran it um, until shortly before she passed away in the 90s. And then her son, Richard, took over and he ran it with his wife for a number of years and they were based here in San Pedro. But then after his wife passed away, like he kind of lost interest in it. Like he didn't really want to do it anymore. So he had somebody else running the place. Um, Grace, she was, she'd been running it for a while from, from what I understand. And the family still owned the property, but they were living upstate and they were kind of hands off. Mm. Yeah, but he was getting he was getting older, and so it was getting to the point where I think like his his children were putting his affairs in order, and mm-hmm. and and you know they were they're really far away, so like it was just like a commitment that I guess they couldn't keep. Yeah, right. which is yeah. understandable. Yeah. So the first signal was that it closed, and that was right. that was kind of the first red flag, like hey, yeah. something's wrong. Yeah. And you had never really been close with the family at all. You didn't really right. know them because right. they were out of towners, right? right? Um, and so, what was your next? What was your thought process about like what to do? So yeah, I immediately kind of went into crisis mode a little bit because I, you know, like just, you know, when you live in LA for a while, you begin to realize like the kind of pressure that everything is under especially small businesses with property values being what they are with this you know just the kind of rapid turnover of everything and i'd seen this happen before to other places that i love where 
there's a change of ownership or somebody has to sell up in a hurry because you know something happened or whatever and places just slip through the cracks because trying to get you know trying to get everything to align in such a way that it can continue just ends up being like too much of a challenge and people are like you know like it just ends up not happening for one reason or another and you know during the pandemic like we lost a number of really great like kind of old time restaurants in LA like Greenblatt's Deli like which is like my favorite Jewish deli in LA that closed that had been around since I think the 20s Oh, wow. Um, yeah, like other places like the Pacific Dining Car, just this really cool, like old school steakhouse mm-hmm. in, in a train car mm-hmm. on just sat on a lot. It's really fabulous place. So there were a number of other places that I'd seen that had shuttered. And I was just like, I, I can't stand the thought of that happening to, to walkers. And, and it can happen just like that. You know, it can happen so easily. I want to reiterate that walkers really became kind of that anchor place for you here where you established like this feeling of home and community in this in this town, yeah. which is so foreign, right? Right. You were in LA, which is in a land far away from where you came <laughs> right, from. Right. Looking for that community, looking for that place where you felt like home and walkers was a place where you felt that anchor, you know? For sure. But mm-hmm. but also like it I was very aware that it wasn't that just for me like it was so apparent that right. it was that for lots of people over right. you know a very long period of time mm-hmm. and you know like just places like that that are kind of homegrown and organic that are just like you know that aren't planned or developed or you know that the latest trendy concept but that have just sprung up and managed to hold on I mean that place has been like holding on to that cliff for like almost a century like that's amazing you know, like those places are just so precious. So, you know, like I kind of immediately went into like, what is something that we can do as a community to, you know, increase the chances of this place getting to stay around and being sort of ushered into the next chapter of its story rather than it just being curtains because it's, you know, a sort of changing of the guards that Mm. happens. And so, and I knew a few people, preservationists although I like I use that term with some reservations because the moment you you tack an ist or an ism it begins to sound like some sort of political platform but when I say like I know preservationists like there are people who love LA's history you know who are rooted in their community and are you know like emotionally attached to places in their community and want to see them stay around and you know there are many people all over LA who've been fighting kind of preservation battles on all sorts of fronts like it's you know everything from like small businesses to like um you know bungalow courts that that are under threat because somebody wants to just raise it and build like a you know a 20-story tower with luxury condos there you know stuff like that this is you know happening in a lot of different places all over los angeles and i from having lived downtown as just as downtown was sort of you know this kind of up-and-coming neighborhood that was changing where they were trying to draw you know like young people who are new to the city but also drawing investors you know with all all the kind of consequences with all the implications of that I'd sort of seen people do that advocacy work um, when I lived there so I reached out to some of those people including um, Kim Cooper and Richard Shave of Esoteric so they um it's they do bus tours of los angeles focusing on kind of underexplored like to do like a raymond chandler tour of los angeles stuff like that now they're doing walking tours as well like um they're just people who are like deeply deeply passionate about la history and so you know they very sorry just to interrupt real quick but this is a very interesting um notion of preserving history in a place that is relatively new in the span of the world history and like right. something that drew me to both san francisco and new york was this historical element was like the right. fact that wow there are places that are old you know and like still intact and still available and so tangible and here in la like i never really felt that i never felt this like entire connection to either the home that we live the area that we lived any right. of the buildings because it just felt too new or maybe not old enough for me to appreciate it and it's unique that there are these older buildings and like something that attracted me to San Pedro itself was the fact that there are all of these buildings that have whether they're facades or not but like have this old historical architecture yeah for sure 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's something that I've been, you know, thinking about and engaging with a lot over the past year is how LA relates to its history. And for me, you know, you know, having lived in Europe most of my life, surrounded by considerably older buildings and built environments, for me, like, it's always been the logical thing when I go somewhere new to look for, you know, the oldest place, like the oldest, the oldest bar, the oldest restaurant, whatever, like, just to get that sense of like, what was this place like in the beginning? What are what are some of its earliest kind of markers, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and there's this thing in LA where, you know, I, I sometimes joke about LA that people don't are incapable of recognizing anything as progress until there's a bulldozer involved. Like there's this very like, you know, you see this in like the, and it's been a part of LA's story from the beginning. I mean, even when you look at the development of downtown Los Angeles, that started out as being a much more like European style city initially. Like when you look at pictures of, from like, you know, the late um, 19th century of like downtown, like you see buildings that would not look out of place in a city like Glasgow, like, or like any other like British city with like, you know, the bay windows and the kind of imposing structures. And then, you know, these ideas about what a city could be and what this city in particular should be were just like revised over and over. And that included, you know, like beautiful buildings being lost. And of course that is a natural part of how a city finds it, its identity, like change is inevitable. But there's also an aspect here where I almost feel like so, like people like LA doesn't always like love its or appreciate its history enough. Maybe because it has this sort of like complex. It's like oh, but we've only been around since yesterday, right? But yeah. there are things about LA that are like uniquely cool and special, like you know, like the neon signs, like the sort mm -hmm. of you know the way that car culture expresses itself, and the different mm -hmm. types of like restaurants and things like that. I mean, like Walkers is a part of that in a way too, because mm -hmm. like walkers starting is like tied up with like the streetcar coming to that neighborhood but then also like you know it became like a biker place and that's a very like west coast story as well yeah right? so and there's something just like uniquely cool about that it very much so i mean everything you're saying is i'm just like yep that is so true we have a culture that has really like came out of los angeles right that like car lowrider culture yeah like we have a classic car culture here in San Pedro right so and that and Walker's Cafe is very much part of that drive which we've talked about in previous episodes mm -hmm. so this was before your time here but there was a, a time where Paseo Del Mar would run all the way through from Walker's Cafe all the way to Royal Palms so right right I'm sure you've heard about yeah. that yeah, yeah, yeah so I mean that was a classic cruise area whether right. you were on a motorcycle or you were on a, in a classic car right and I think that's why Walker's Cafe became such a cool hub for those types of cultures um and you're absolutely right like it is it is very much part of la culture and, and heritage if you will you know yeah. we it, i don't want to say it came from us you know but the lowrider community really did foster out of los angeles not yeah. here necessarily but it, that's where it came from you right. know right um and absolutely we need to we need to preserve these type yeah. of things and, and it's and it's interesting because speaking to the disconnect that's that's what i felt like i felt like i didn't appreciate coming from la as much as i do now returning and being like whoa right. like all these things that you know i saw elsewhere i can see here you know or there is this culture this heritage that is unique to LA that I didn't yeah. recognize until I left. Well, maybe. LA just hasn't, I feel like LA hasn't really figured out how to engage with its history yet in like a sort of systemic way. You know, like even like the museums are kind of, they're scattered and yeah. people, like they're not. And relatively new too, like even architecturally speaking too, I, some of the museums. Yeah, and like our museums aren't necessarily about our history, they're about like other things, you know what I mean? Well, and they touch on Yeah, history, and it's but. like, and if there's, you know, if there's overlap, like you wouldn't necessarily realize it because it's like, yeah, you know, like. It's not connected. Yeah, and then, you know, you have those pillars that you wear, wear like those round pillars with like banners like where you have like the historic photographs and then information like strategic locations i don't think we have any of them in the south bay but i've seen them downtown i've seen them in like you know the kind of mid wilshire area and i always feel like so frustrated when i see those because it's like the intention is obviously there 
but they're usually like positioned on the sidewalk somewhere in like the blazing sunshine where you have like four lanes of cars like barreling past you <laughs> and you're supposed to stand there and sort of leisurely take in this like historical information which obviously that's not going to happen you know <laughs> right, right so a lot of it is just like you know it's it's not readily accessible for mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. in a way that they can you know understand and where they can tap into their emotional connection because you know like i think like virtually everyone has some sort of emotional attachment to the place where they live even if they've just moved there or even if they're angry with it most of the time you know they're just things there are these ingrained patterns you know in our everyday lives that's like oh i like walking past that house because it has a really cool turret or something like that you know mm -hmm. like we all have these like instinctive you know like attachments that we that we build over time but it's then like finding out the kind of actual context and the actual background information isn't always easy here yeah it's not as accessible mm -hmm. yeah Hey, real quick, just want to remind you that we have a Patreon. So if you're enjoying this episode and you're loving the podcast, then we invite you to check us out at patreon.com slash hellosanpedro. There you can be a supporter of the pod. And as a supporter, you will gain access to weekly bonus episodes. For example, in this week's episode, we ask Emma about some of the controversy that came up when getting Walker's Cafe a historical landmark designation. Um, she was able to direct directly respond to some of the criticism and I'm really glad we got her perspective on the story. Anyway, let's get back to the episode. So yeah, so that was the, the first step I took to kind of gauge people's interest was to launch this petition. And what, you know, what I was like particularly moved by were the comments that came in. Like this one woman wrote about how her dad used to always come to Walker's and then after he died, she would bring her mom there because it like reminded them of him. And it was just like, you know, like people were kind of sharing stories like that. And, you know, it just made me realize like how, you know, how important this place is. And yeah, I mean, I never like considered myself an, an activist. I'm, I'm still not sure that I do. Uh, I've never really like taken a stance for anything as as publicly as I have for this, but it was just something that I felt, you know, like I, I, I've kept joking to people that this was like the political issue that ra radicalized me. That's sort of, you know, where I sort of went from being like quietly sad and disgruntled with it, which I've been about many other things that have happened in LA over time to like, oh, I actually, I could be the person to like, you know, try and, and get something going here and see if we can, you know, change, potentially change the outcome. Well, I think you've said it, you know, you've seen this happen so many times before and you've seen these places slip through the cracks. I think Walker's Cafe could have easily been one of those places. Right. And I don't have an attachment to Walker's Cafe, but I would probably, I would be really disappointed and kind of devastated that it, ha you know, from a, from a distance that it would have gone under and maybe, you know, been turned into something else because I know that it is a historical place you know it wasn't my place right but I know how much history that it has um so I I think it's incredible that you you know you took initiative on it and then I still like getting all the support from reading all those comments like not only your own connection with walkers but through other people's connections as well like hearing their yeah. stories through that place. yeah and that's I mean that's what really kind of set the ball rolling like is you know kind of you know, I'd reached out to people, but then people started reaching out to me as well. And people started, you know, sharing like pictures and things like that, you know, like just pictures of them there when they were younger, like stuff like that. And did you need all of this um, physical evidence for the application yeah. and the petition yeah. itself? Because I was going to say, I really would like to go into the history that you discovered and, and the history that you use to make your case. Right, so the way it works for a historic landmark application, there are three criteria that the city uses and you, it, you have to have at least one. So one is um, architecturally significant, which like Walker's wasn't gonna be that necessarily because it's you know a fairly humble building. It's not like art deco mm -hmm. splendor or anything mm -hmm. like that. The other is an as association with the lives of people who have been important to the city. And the third, potential criterion is um, importance to like social, cultural, and commercial history. And that was, that was going to be the one, you know, just what it's been, what it's been for San Pedro and how it ties into all these different parts of San Pedro's identity, you know, how it's been a place for like people who were, you know, longshoremen, fishermen, like 
It's been a place for people stationed at Fort MacArthur. Um, Raymond J. Walker, who gave Walker's Cafe its name, was a Navy veteran. So, like, there are all these, you know, St. Peter's military history comes into it as well. So there are all these different things that kind of converge there. And then just the fact that it's, you know, it's the oldest room. It's the oldest remaining restaurant in San Pedro. It's been in continuous operation since, even since before it became Walker's. Before it became Walker's, it was a place called Cuddles or Cuddle Cafe. Mm. Um, which I never knew that. Which apparently was a real dive. Um, from, from what Bessie said in interviews later, they really had to turn the place around once they took over. <laughs> and before that, it was a grocery store and soda fountain run by a, a, a kind of prominent family who um, went on to be the owners of the San Pedro Motor Bus Company. So, oh, yeah, so it's, it, its roots go back to around 1916. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Walker Cafe, like, in its first original state, was started in 1916? Yeah, that oh, was my a, goodness. yeah, and at that point, you know, there wasn't very much at Point Furman at all. Like, mm-hmm. it was just beginning to be a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, the first owner w- owners were the Landier family, Felician Landier, who went on to be basically this like public transit mogul. Um, op- opened this little grocery store and soda fountain there, catering, mm-hmm. you know, catering to pe- people like weekend visitors to Point Furman. It came to like picnic at the park or whatever. People who were getting off the streetcar, which like terminated like right there on that stretch mm-hmm. of Paseo del Mar, which. At- that point, pre-landslide, that was Pacific Avenue, was continuous all the way through Sunken City, ending at Point Furman. Mm-hmm. So people would get off there and you'd have like a captive audience because, you know, somebody wants like something to drink or a sandwich or whatever. So like mm-hmm. that, that was that was one of the places in the park that, that catered to that. But it's the only place that's, you know, that's lasted all this time. Mm-hmm. Wow, I'm honestly blown away at how old it was. I didn't think it was that. I didn't think it was 1916. Like yeah, I mean, it's so the building. It's not a 1916 building. It's a 1935 building with some 1916 bones. Mm-hmm. So because I went in and looked at all these like aerial photographs and stuff, and you see it changing over time. And so initially, the grocery store building was much bigger, and then it becomes like this. Now it's like almost like this sort of rectangle, this sort of shoebox shape. Like it's the footprint of it is really small, and I'm still not like quite sure why that is. But my pet theory is that it might have been related to the landslide and/or the Long Beach earthquake, which mm-hmm. caused significant damage in okay. San Pedro as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, can you, if you could just say that one more time, the Long Beach earthquake. Yeah, so my pet theory about why um, what the, the building there went from something bigger to something smaller, which doesn't really make sense from a business perspective, mm-hmm. is that it might have been related to either the landslide and or the Long Beach earthquake, which did significant damage in San Pedro. So there might have been structural damage to the grocery store, and then they sort of you know made it this smaller thing and turned it into a cafe. Oh, and then right next door are homes nearby, right? Yeah. So, like, were those part, at some point, part of it? Or no, it would have been on the other side of it? No. So, yeah, it's funny, because, like, this is something that's kind of come up in, in, like, kind of, I guess, conversations about the bureaucratic technicalities of where Walker's is. People are like, it's a, it's a cafe right in the middle of a neighborhood. Like, it's, like, this, like, crazy thing, which... Like, to me, having lived in European cities, like, that's quite normal. And it's quite normal in San Pedro. But it's something that apparently urban planning kind of later, in, in later decades, sort of steered away from. Like It's not you as know, common. Yeah, yeah like, the, the, there began to be this idea that you, you go to a place, whether it be, like, a strip mall or something else. You, you go to a sort of central area to, you know, get a mm-hmm. bite to eat or do your shopping or whatever. But, yeah, that's one of the things about... San Pedro that I think is really cool you have places like Joseph's Bakery that's also just like in the middle of like the corner store that's mm-hmm. another one there's yeah. they, or even like Colossus and the Troy Man yeah. they're yeah. right there in the middle of the neighborhood and they just you know they cater to that anyone who, yeah like the, that specific area and anyone who who passes through it mm-hmm. and so yeah like Walker's has always been on on a residential block mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now were there any like pushback from the neighbors no, well, no, like actually uh, one of the 
Walker's immediate neighbor uh, on one side has been really supportive and like yeah. phoned into you know phoned into council hearings and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there there wasn't really any there wasn't really any pushback. You mentioned phoned in, and I'm realizing all of this took place during a global pandemic. So I mean, I'm a t- I'm thinking like a lot of Zoom meetings, a lot of calls, right? Yeah, it wasn't like everyone could gather. Yeah, so that that was a kind of strange aspect as well. Um, yeah, so city hearings, I think, are still all on Zoom. Um, I think I, it's just this, the, the city council itself that has switched to in-person. So if you want to go and give public comment at a city council hearing, you actually have to drive to city hall and, and physically sit in that room. Um, but they were doing like all the kind of different like committees and, and sort of entities within the city have been doing things through Zoom. So um, I ended up submitting this landmark application in December, like right before Christmas. And then the first hearing was scheduled for January. And that was 2021. Um, what year are we in? Where we're in 2020. 2022, January of this year. Oh, God. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, and at that first hearing, like more. So that was the Cultural Heritage Commission, who are like an advisory body appointed by the city. Um, and they make re- they review landmarking applications and then basically issue a recommendation to the city as to whether or not they should move forward with landmarking. So that's sort of the first stage in the process. And so at that first hearing, more than a dozen people phoned in in support, which is unheard of. Like oh, usually, wow. usually you know, people like it'll be like two or three. You know, like it's it's very uncommon for there to be such an outpouring. And I think they really, you know, Recognize took that. took notice. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, yeah. And I was going to ask, so then the process going through the stages, I mean, with all the support that you were getting um, and this petition was getting, like, it did it help smooth through to get... Yeah, I mean, that's a major, major part of it is, you know, they really, it's, you know, it's a sort of confluence of different factors, but because it's something initiated that the community can initiate and then, you know, like, so it can be two different things. So a... Um, city council member can also recommend a place for landmark status or it can come from the community so there are different ways it can go and this was a community initiated effort from the start and it was clear that people were really engaged and they absolutely like take their cues from that like that's a huge part of it mm-hmm. and you know i mean obviously like walkers isn't for everyone like there's there's nothing in san pedro that's for everyone like i've and, and there have been people who, who've said like, oh, like, I don't really understand, like, I don't understand what the fuss is about. Or, you know, I've had a few people say like, oh, like, I've always, I, even a few people who are like supportive, but who've said like, oh, I've never been because always, I've always been scared to go in there because bikers go there. And it's, I just think that's the funniest thing. Well, it's funny because it, it does have an intimidation. Like, even myself, I'm like, I'm not just going to go walk into a biker's bar. You know what I mean? And I think that just comes from, like, movies and, t- you know, TV. Right. Who create that intimidating, intimidating like, look or, you know, uh, that, yeah. that, that stigma around right. biker's bars, right? But now what's funny is that my mom and my brothers and my uncle, like, all recently became bikers in the last two years. So now they're going to all these places, and they have, like, bikers at their house all the time. And it's just really funny how they're, like, very immersed now yeah I mean it's just it's it's funny that it is like a little bit stigmatized I think mm-hmm. and it's you know I mean my 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 best friend is a is a, in in who lives in the UK he's a he's a biker as are a number of my friends there and he's like you know a, a psychotherapist and a bookseller like you know like it's so I guess from the get-go like I didn't have these sort of stereotypical associations you know but I feel like the European biker is 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 a different is it doesn't have the same stigma as like the American biker, does it? I don't know. I mean, I I, I would never think anything of like a European biker because I feel like it's such a popular mode of transportation, especially like in Italy and you know all these. But the, those are like Vespas. Those scooters are different. Well, I right. think motorbikes like, have the same like culturally are kind of the same. Like, like I the think leather also, jacket. And yeah, like I mean, it, it does have the association <laughs> with like toughness and yeah. sort of counter. Cultural, uh-huh. you know, like that. I think that's, yeah. you know, that's true in, in Europe as well. Okay. okay. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, so like, I always think it's funny when people have that sort of reaction because, you know, I always just say like, I'm a, I'm a fairly slight queer woman. Like, I'm not like, you know, if, if like, 
And you wear I, a bowler hat. I wear a bowler hat. Like, like every I'm, time I see you, you're in a bowler yes, hat, you know? Yeah. If you've got a Charlie Chaplin, you know, vibe to you. <laughs> so, so I don't see you in a biker bar. Yeah, really. so, you know, like if, if people think that that's what the, the sort of target audience for Walkers is, like that isn't me, but I felt... I felt welcome there and you know like I've, I've sat there surround you know on like a Saturday like sometimes it would get really busy with people like you know on on cruises and stopping to have like a burger and you know like I've I've always felt really comfortable and I think it's just like again like it's just like part of the diversity and part of how it ties into like mm-hmm. kind of LA culture is like yeah. people stop there and like you know I I combed through like the walkers tag on Instagram looking for pictures and you see these pictures where like somebody like takes their low rider out and they like, p- yep. like pose in front of walkers because it's like that's like the stopping place like that's where you go so well I, I really well I was going to say I just want to be considerate of your time and we are coming into an hour and a half almost and I don't want to wrap up completely yet but I want to start getting into that um, I just have one question sure. before we get to the last three so um, what is the future now for that's where Walk- I was going to go oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> no go ahead yeah I was just going to yeah. ask like, what is the future now for walkers like what's the next step right so um, walkers just uh, last month officially became a historic cultural monument mm-hmm. it went to a full city council vote in august so that's official now um it changed hands earlier this year in march it was bought by an investment group based in burbank and they um they have said that they're interested in that their interest is in opening it up to the public and making it a cafe and that they're working toward that mm-hmm. so that's still in progress there are a lot of hoops to jump through um, there have been like some, I would say, communication failures there where they um, recently did some work without having gotten the required permits from the city. Mm-hmm. So that led to some concern in the community. Like I was actually out of town at the time and people reached out to me and said, hey, what's going on? Like, should they be doing work? Um, so that was kind of the most recent, you know, thing that happened was um, that uh, yeah, so there, there, there's been some work there that was done without permits, but an inspector came out and, and, and kind of, it is my understanding, talked things through with them, so I'm not quite clear on. Um, I think Ryan, Ryan Ferguson from the council office will be giving an update on that at the next neighborhood council meeting for um, Central, which is the neighborhood council that I'm on as well. Um, so hopefully he should have kind of an update on where that's going so, so they, is um, is your role in this process now that it's received its designation kind of like, I guess not as in in yeah um, I mean basi- involved yeah basically because like that's the one thing too that you know like it's worth pointing out or worth being clear on is like there's a lot while there is a lot that can be accomplished by you know speaking up and 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 you know being engaged as a community and saying like this is what we want to see happen for this place. You know, there's a certain point where there are certain things that only the property owner can do, right? right. So and when now it, it's yeah, the property when owners. it comes to you know like making decisions about like uh, you know putting it on the market, who buys it, who sells, like I don't control those things. Like I've had people come to me and be like, oh, I wanted to see this happen to it, or I wanted to see that happen to it. I'm like, well, you know, like I'm not the arbiter of walkers, like yeah. you know, um, so. You know, so like the, when it comes to like applying for permits and, and jumping through like the kind of hoops involved in like reopening a restaurant, like that's kind of a journey that the new owners need to go on. So um, the investment group is a new owner, yes. correct? And yeah. they're based out of Burbank. Yeah. So are they aware of what it just went through and they're aware of the historical status? Yeah. And so, so I'm, I'm assuming there are some things they can't do, right? They have to preserve kind of the the state that it's in, in yeah so yeah so it's 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 complicated so basically yeah they became interested um as it was still going through the landmarking process so actually they phoned into the second cultural heritage commission hearing in march and said we're currently in talks we're hoping to buy it and we want to keep it what it is and we're you know we, we we know what it's been to the community so that's where they sort of you know, Were they like, for the historical yeah. designation? Yeah, oh, so that's, that's cool. where that's where they kind of spoke up and said, like, we know that that's where this is going, you know. Um, and so, what the landmark status means, like, it 
means that whatever they want to change, they have to run that by the city and specifically the city's Office of Historic Resources. That's the body within the city that deals with historic landmarks. Mm -hmm. So, and that is to make sure that the historic features are preserved and what qualifies as historic features, like that's different from one landmark to the next. So, you know, for walkers, they're the things that, you know, it's things like the neon sign, which is original, which is still there and which, is, is my understanding that that will be relit, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. And so like there's a hand painted menu board inside as you come in, the, the bar is original. So stuff like that. It doesn't actually, it doesn't prevent people from doing like structural repairs. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's kind of important to be clear on that because a lot of people have this misconception that once you landmark something, it's like trapped in amber and you're creating this bureaucratic nightmare and now people will have to fill out paperwork and triplicates to do anything and it's going to be really difficult. Mm -hmm. It's It does put protections in place, like that's the point, because without that, it's very difficult for places like this to continue to exist mm -hmm. in the kind of pro-development, mm -hmm. you know, like exponentially high property values climate that we're in in LA, like places like Walker's Needle, the help they can get. Mm -hmm. But it, so like, it does mean like there are certain things, you know, there are certain sort of barriers or there's just a level of supervision where it's like, hey, what, what, are you, what exactly is your plan here? And is your plan gonna lead to, you know, like just, I guess, making sure that people will be able to continue to enjoy and appreciate what makes the place special. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't make it um, impossible for the structural repairs to be done. Right, because yeah. that's, you know. Like if you don't have a working plumbing situation, you can fix it, right? Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, that's know. super important. And in fact, you know, once a place is a landmark, you then have a whole slew of like grants and stuff that you can apply for that that's are specifically great. to help a historic building because it's different. Because different rules apply once a building has been deemed historic. Right. And right. that also means that there are certain aspects of, um, you know, like sort of safety re regulations, stuff like that, where you can kind of come up with like tailor-made solutions. Like when you have a modern building, there's stuff like it has to have like a fire escape out the front, out the back. Like you couldn't do that for every historic house. Like you can't sort of like... You know, right. take a Victorian home and be like, all right, we're just going to put a tack on a fire escape. Like, it would look horrible. So people try to come up with these solutions that will work for what this specific building is. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's another thing that basically, like, kind of helps, you know, keep it... Maintain ma it. Maintain, it's genuine. Yeah, maintain its character, but also make sure that, you know, it is safe and it's, you know, 21st century appropriate, basically. Right. That's very cool. That's exciting. And are what are your hopes for it? Do you want it to be revived back to what you remember arriving and having like that Bessie Burger there in Walker's Cafe? Yeah, or? I mean, basically, I mean, you know, I the most important thing is just like that it's opened back up to the community and whoever. So the the people who own it, like they're not restaurateurs, so they are looking for an operator. So, you know, like whoever comes in, they're obviously going to want to give their own twist to the place and, you know, that they might have like different ideas about the kind of food that they want to serve or they want, maybe they want to expand the menu. I don't know. But it's just like for it to be there for people to enjoy. Like it's such a, you know, also just like sitting there, like having that view of Catalina, like it's such a special spot. Mm -hmm. So like that's you know that's my main hope is to just like actually you know be be, be able to walk in there and have my coffee again you your know? coffee and your burger yeah, yeah. and yeah. just being able to do that again is so close to like the beautiful view which is very pedro yeah. um well that kind of takes us into our next question and that is so something i like to ask all of our guests is it's a two-part question what are some things that concern you about san pedro or you feel that have room for improvement Mm -hmm. And then the second part is, what is something that excites you about San Pedro? Okay. Um, so what concerns me about San Pedro, I would definitely say gentrification, um, development, property values, like that whole kind of constellation of factors and what that means for, you know, people's concrete living experiences, you know, what it's like to actually be here. You know, it's it's funny because, you know, like I'm, you know, relatively new to San Pedro and 
sometimes I'll talk to people and they'll assume that just because I arrived recently, I'm living in one of those like new modern high rises, like that there are several of in the downtown area. And I'm like, no, like that's what I came to St. Peter to get away from. Um, so on the flip side of the question, what are some things that you're excited about? Um, I'm excited about like a, a bunch of the sort of small homegrown businesses here, like um, mm-hmm. Miller Butler, Pasta, mm-hmm. like we, we call them pizza on the block because mm-hmm. um, they were they were doing it like really close to us during the pandemic. Like now they're doing it like at Whiskey Flats and or Brewery West. Mm-hmm. They like pop up pizza, which is like fantastic, like best pizza in Pedro. In my What's opinion. your favorite one to order? Uh, the bougie for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah the bougie was <laughs> yeah. delicious. The, the so honey good. is like such an inspired so move. It's so, yeah, honestly, so odd to put honey on pizza and it was delicious. It, it works so well. It does. So, yeah, like, I'm excited about, you know, places like that, like, Brewery West I go to all the time. Um, Describe your most ideal Emma experience in San Pedro. Well, that it was going to Walker's and having a Bessie burger and a coffee. So um, It's on pause. It's on pause. Um, sailing. I, I uh, volunteer with LAMI, with the Los Angeles Maritime Yeah, Institute, they do. The, they the, teach sailing the to, yeah. like, youth, right? Yes. That's so cool. We need to talk to somebody over there. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, you know, sa- sailing and then some marine ecology, some navigation, kind of education aspect comes that's into that. So cool. So, yeah, I volunteer with them and just, like, getting to go out onto the ocean, like, that's, like, a perfect That's thing. incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be, there's nothing better than being on a boat. Has anything replaced the coffee burger experience for you? Not really. No. Mm-hmm. No. I mean, there are other places that, you know, like Omelette Waffle is like our go-to breakfast spot. You know, like we have a bunch of good coffee shops downtown. Like I go to all three um, for for different occasions. Sirens, Ojas, and... Um, Sacred Grounds. Sacred Grounds, yeah. right? Yeah. And there's a new one about to open. So that's... I think so. The yeah. one right here on 7th Street? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's I'm been in the works for following that one, too. I'm, like, waiting. <laughs> yeah. I need to follow them, because I don't, I, I, like, know nothing about it. So I'm excited. They're going to open soon. That's all I know. <laughs> it's, like, delayed. Not soon enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, eating a, eating a chori man burrito in the park. I mean, that's where we're an Italian Leland sandwich. Park, like the or the one um, close a- to Avril. Usually, is usually my you go to Avril. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's a yeah. great park. I, I love being I love being high up. Like that's another reason that I did not thrive in Holland. But and, and something I really love about California and about San Pedro is like just mountainous, hilly places. So I like going up to like Angels Gate and Avril Park. The same. I just like I love having a view. Like I just there's something that's really so calming true. about I it. I see the commonalities in Silver Lake because the topography there is also like. Dynamic. Yeah, it's not yeah. Flat. I used to do like there are there are all those like um, stairways in Silver Lake. So I used to do. Yeah. Those, there's mm-hmm. a book where like the secret stair walk. So I, I did all of those oh, when I lived so there, cool. and it's just like sitting at the top of it, you know, and watching the sunset is just is, is great. And there are a lot of places to do that here too. So that's yeah, all the all the high places, the, including Hey Rookie, which is like probably the most picturesque pool I've been to in my life. Right? Um, yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's a great one. Well, uh-huh. thank you so much. Yeah. Emma. Thank you. Before yeah. we go, where can people find you? Um, they can find me on Instagram, I guess. Um, I'm at, at e.e.ralt. R-A-U-L-T is my last name. That's where I'm most active. I mean, I'm, I'm on other forms of social media, but I'm mm-hmm. I'm largely trying to wean myself off the internet. I, I over I overdosed during lockdown, and, and now yeah. I'm enjoying being in the in the real world again. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you can find me there or, you know, around San Pedro. Wonderful. In your bowler hat. Yes. <laughs> yes. If you, if you see... see somebody wearing a bowler hat, it's it's probably me. <laughs> so yeah, say hi. I love it. I love that you've got that look, and it's so cool. Um, well, thank you again. Yeah, we, thank you so much for your time, for what you did with Walker's Cafe. All of that took time, I'm sure. And so we yeah. are trying to acknowledge and, you know, um, pay respect to some of our history preservers, you know, this month. And we think that that work is really, really, really important. And um, I'm glad that you took some initiative and didn't yeah. watch it just happen, which, you know, we all do. We all watch it happen. So well, it's I incredible. Think, you know, I think people often feel powerless and yeah. they feel like, yeah. you know, they don't know how to make a difference. Yeah. And it is or, like it's, you know. Or we make, we, we make the effort way too late before, you know, when things right. have already, already are underway. People don't expect sure. things to move as quickly as they do. But they do. For yeah. sure. Yeah, and well, there's there's a lot of valuable 
history here. And there's a lot of work to be done still. I mean, we're doing some stuff in our neighborhood council with like, you know, the Japanese history of Terminal Island and kind of ways to direct attention to that. And, you know, there are a lot of ways in which, you know, San Pedro is a really unique sliver of LA and we need to cherish that. Yeah, amazing. Well, thanks again. Thank you so much. That's all for our episode. Follow us for more on Instagram at HelloSPPodcast. Huge thanks to Rock Ashfields at Palm Realty Boutique for providing us such a gorgeous recording space. And thank you to all of our amazing Patreon supporters. Leave us a review and share this episode with your friends, neighbors, and coworkers. See you next week. Bye.